It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. 54-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson didn't know what to do as she reread a message from her online boyfriend of two years, Eric Cole. The Yahoo chat ping brought bad news. An international timber shipment he was supposed to clear was stuck in customs. He had to pay a fee immediately to release it, but he didn't have the money to cover the cost. Eric asked Debbie for an emergency loan, which he swore he'd pay back as soon as the timber shipment sold. When he flew to Florida to see her, she was sympathetic, but she just didn't have the money. In fact, she was struggling to cover her own bills. Debbie had already been so generous to Eric that she compromised her own financial health. She had borrowed against her diamond engagement ring and cashed in her retirement funds. But Debbie loved Eric. She racked her brain for a way to send what he needed. An unsettling thought dawned on her. There was one way to get the money. It made Debbie's heart sink. But she had to try. Debbie trusted her father implicitly and knew she could ask for a favor in dire times. She told him how Eric's business was in jeopardy again. Her father was sympathetic. He had watched his daughter endure one of the most traumatic times of her life, losing her husband. And Eric made Debbie so happy. He agreed to help. The day and her love was saved. Still... The element of the unknown nagged at Debbie. Eric hadn't repaid her for any of her earlier loans, and $100,000 was the largest sum he'd borrowed yet. She certainly felt guilty asking for so much from her retired parents, but it would be worth it. She felt certain. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. 
At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're returning to Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the Florida widow who lost over a million dollars to a catfishing con artist. She fell in love with a man named Eric Cole over the course of a two-year long-distance relationship. She never met him face-to-face. Instead, they maintained their connection through instant messaging nearly every day. Last week, we covered Debbie's journey from sudden widowhood to online dating, where she found her own Prince Eric. But for all his flattery and charm, he also had a lot of requests from Debbie and her bank account. This week, we'll examine how Debbie grappled with the implications of Eric's mounting requests and how she reacted when he revealed his true nature. We'll also see how Debbie tried to avenge her con artist and where she is today. After two years of long-distance dating, Eric asked 54-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson for another sizable loan, $100,000. It was a huge amount of money, and Debbie couldn't help but take pause, especially since her financial security was much more nebulous than it appeared on paper. Though she'd be the last to admit it, Debbie's currency in her relationship with Eric was money, not love. And transferring thousands of dollars repeatedly had taken its toll. She was going broke. In her autobiography, the woman behind the smile, Debbie explained the lengths she went to to keep helping Eric and therefore keep him in her life. She staggered out her own bill payments and sold off gold jewelry. Though they were loans to Eric, they were debts to Debbie. But she validated their necessity because they were framed as helping Eric, not paying Eric. And he would pay her back once they were finally together. Debbie considered Eric family, and family was everything. She was willing to compromise her own needs if it meant stabilizing his. Debbie was now engaging in the reciprocity Eric had shown her. If she went out on a limb for him financially, the presumption was that he would pay her back and return the gesture should she ever need it. The pressure to reciprocate is often inherent in romantic relationships. According to Linda Bloom, co-author of Secrets of Great Marriages, we may find ourselves giving out of a sense of obligation if our partner has given us more than we feel we have given them. Eric's affection gave Debbie happiness back after the sudden death of her husband. What was a little money compared to that? especially when he was going to repay her. But Debbie's behavior indicated she wanted more than quid pro quo. She may have been using her generosity as a means to an end. She wanted Eric to settle down with her permanently. 
Judging by her statements in The Woman Behind the Smile, Debbie was ready to create a life with him. It was an incredible leap of faith, granted they had never met in person. Yet Debbie was willing to gamble that Eric would be as good in person as he was online. She had every reason to believe he would be. They'd spent hundreds of hours talking, forging a deep bond. His constant love and affection made her feel secure. She had something and someone to look forward to. That was enough to keep her giving. Though Debbie had been talking to Eric for nearly two years, only a few of her family members knew that the relationship was so rife with loans and favors. Aside from her parents, who she involved only by necessity, no one knew quite how much she had invested in her beau. Debbie feared that her family would reject Eric if she revealed the payments. Early in her relationship with him, she divulged to her sons that she had lent him a little money. They were furious and insisted that Debbie not give any more. She bristled, surprised at their degree of resistance. She rationalized. The boys were threatened by Eric, worried that Debbie might be replacing their father with this new man. Sure, it was easy to see Eric as a possible replacement for Lou, but she assured them no one would replace their dad. But the next time she mentioned he was having difficulty making ends meet, she was met with the same fierce opposition. Debbie didn't like being scolded by her kids, so she just pretended everything was copacetic and made no mention of money ever again. It was easier not to argue. She and Eric were just a happy couple albeit one who only talked online. But hiding the relationship's true cost likely intensified Debbie's feelings of fear and isolation. If her sons disapproved of small loans, surely she couldn't reveal how much she had actually given Eric. And he constantly reassured her that things would all work out. With no other outlets to give her feedback, she believed him and swallowed her doubts. Unfortunately, the burden of keeping secrets was one Debbie was all too familiar with. When Debbie was in the Air Force, she was tasked with highly classified information. She spoke to her adeptness at staying silent in her book, writing, Throughout my adult life and multiple careers, I have been admonished to keep things quiet, confidential, secret, or top secret in my Air Force life. By the time she met Eric, it was nearly second nature for Debbie to harbor delicate information. But two years of secrecy was becoming too much. Debbie had never been this financially unstable and unable to talk about it. All of her concerns finally bubbled over one day in the fall of 2012. That September, one of Eric and Debbie's usual chats took a philosophical turn. Seemingly out of the blue, Eric initiated a conversation about Debbie's opinion on forgiving others. It was a sizable portion of their Christian faith, and they discussed the idea once before, 
when Debbie revealed that Lou once had an affair. Knowing that she had managed to maintain a loving relationship with her late husband despite this may have primed the pump for what came next. On September 10th, 2012, Eric and Debbie engaged in, as she put it, a spirited, spiritual conversation that lasted for hours. Debbie spoke at length about what she had done throughout her marriage with Lou to keep the family strong. Eric seemed receptive, but the chat was cut short when his internet connection went down. Later that day, when Eric came back online, he was still eager to talk. He messaged Debbie, continuing where they left off. Forgiveness. But his tone was more urgent now. He told Debbie he must reveal something about himself, that the Spirit of the Lord had prompted him to come forward. The loaded setup left Debbie on eggshells. Despite her mounting anxiety, she encouraged him to go ahead. Eric confided that God had spoken to him through divine intervention. He needed to come forward and tell Debbie the truth about their relationship. Eric didn't pull any punches. He was scamming her. He hadn't been honest about his identity. He didn't love her. When he found her on the dating website and made contact, his only intention was to use Debbie as his personal ATM. The words hit Debbie like a brick. For a moment, she couldn't breathe. But before she could even start typing a response, Eric continued. He tried to pivot away from the negatives. God had made him aware of his mistake. He felt terrible. He knew his actions were selfish and inhumane. He told her, This isn't right, and I was once blind, but thanks be to God who has opened my eyes to see the light and retrace my steps from darkness under his glorious light. She couldn't believe it. She typed back furiously. He was lying. But Eric assured her he wasn't. He was telling the truth for the first time since they'd met. Fueled by confusion and anger, Debbie typed back, Was his name even Eric Cole? No, it was all fake. The persona of the British contractor living abroad was a sham. Debbie was incredulous. She'd seen pictures of Eric, Mary and Kenny, of their house in England, even their dog. She talked to them all for hours and considered them family. She wouldn't believe it until she saw it. So Debbie challenged Eric. Prove it. Eric told Debbie to enable the video chat through Yahoo Messenger. He would start a live video. She was skeptical. After nearly two years of him dodging her request to chat face to face, it couldn't be this simple. But just seconds later, an invitation to video chat popped up. She held her breath, then clicked accept.
coming up, Debbie and Eric Cole finally see each other face to face. Now back to the story. On September 10th, 2012, after two years of long-distance dating, 54-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson had a shocking conversation with her online boyfriend, Eric Cole. He confessed that their entire relationship was a lie. Not only did he not love her, his name wasn't even Eric. And he would prove it to her. Debbie was unsure of whether or not she should accept the video chat invite. But she pushed through her confusion. She needed answers. She deserved to know who she had been sharing her deepest hopes and dreams with for all this time. She clicked to accept the video chat. The video feed left her speechless. Instead of the ruggedly handsome 50-something British man she'd been imagining all these months, staring back at her was a young man with dark hair and a small grin. Flustered, Debbie reached for her cell phone and snapped a photo of their video chat. She was so shaken, she immediately closed the window. Though overwhelmed, Debbie had a choice. She could leave her computer to try to process what she'd just seen, or she could stay online and try to push for answers. She was simultaneously afraid to talk to this stranger and also desperate to know his identity. Who had she been talking to for the past 22 months? Who had she given over a million dollars? The need for clarity overpowered her hesitation. She fired off a message to Eric's screen name. Reeling with hurt, she asked if he still loved her. He sidestepped, telling her she was a kind woman he developed a passion for, but that wasn't love. And Debbie noticed his language grow plainer, less romantic. As simply as a switch being flipped, she was now communicating with an entirely different person. What would become of the money she borrowed from her family, she asked. He didn't reply to that. Debbie persisted, demanding to know why he was telling her this information now, why an ordinary Monday was the appropriate time to uproot their relationship. Eric echoed his earlier statement. An intervention from God had moved him to give up the ruse. Debbie wasn't interested in going back to lofty conversation, though. She wanted more concrete answers, asking, What is your name? I still believe I'm talking to Eric. The screen name replied, Joseph. Debbie thought for a moment, racking her brain for a response. The rug had been ripped directly out from under her. She was hurt, angry, and bewildered. Yet she felt pressured to get more out of the immediate conversation. If she didn't, this man claiming to be Joseph could disappear forever, leaving her without answers and without her entire life savings. Typing carefully, Debbie told Joseph, I can forgive, 
But it will be a hard thing for my family to do if you don't make things right. You need to return all of the money you took from me. I willingly gave it to Eric, Mary, and Kenny, but not to someone that wasn't honest with me. She was clear. She expected to be repaid. Joseph backtracked, asking again if she would forgive him first. It was a matter of faith, Joseph insisted. He needed to know he could make things right with her. Debbie was shocked by his nonchalance. He seemed more concerned with his own spiritual absolution than the fact he owed Debbie a cool million in damages. Debbie tried not to let her panic seep into their chat. She didn't have a last name, location, or any information to track down Joseph should their conversation end. She tried a different tactic to draw out information. She asked why, if Joseph loved her, did he play her? Taking so much from someone he claimed to have a deep emotional connection to was inconceivable in her mind. Joseph claimed he was a victim himself. Both his parents died when he was a university student. He was left to care for his six younger siblings. Though they were able to live with an aunt, Joseph was overwhelmed by the ongoing responsibility and dropped out of school. He turned to scamming out of dire need for money. However, when he realized he could make enough to pay for an apartment for all of his siblings and send them to private school, he was inclined to keep running cons. His intentions were pure, he assured Debbie. It had been ten years since tragedy struck the family, and his efforts had kept them together. They were doing okay, thanks to his hard work. Even if this was true, Debbie didn't care. She had been swindled and duped, and she wasn't even Joseph's only victim. This blatant arrogance set her off. She told Joseph how she had scrimped and cut corners in her own life to help him. She sacrificed nice things for her family to be able to loan him money. She was livid. And more than that, she was heartbroken. She'd been duped into believing a new chapter of her life was on the horizon once Eric was done with his contracting overseas. The conversation was an ugly reality check. None of the relationship milestones she'd anticipated would ever happen. She wouldn't visit his family in the UK. He wouldn't meet her kids over the holidays. They wouldn't be together at all. There was no relationship. So Debbie gave Joseph an ultimatum, typing, if what you're telling me this time about your family is true, then I won't report you. But you'll need to pay me back every cent and you'll need to assure me you will not do this to any other woman ever. Debbie's story is, unfortunately, not that uncommon. Love or romance scamming is a territory rife for the con artists of the 21st century. 
Their cons incorporate the bevy of resources and connections now available at the touch of a button. And one specific pocket of crime, love scams, has ballooned since the inception of online dating, representing a significant portion of online predation. In 2017, Public Radio International reported that the FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center indicated that online romance scams account for higher financial losses than any other Internet-based crime. The New York Times noted that Americans reported just $33 million lost to so-called romance scams in 2015, according to the FCC. The number of reports more than doubled over a three-year period, too, to more than 21,000 in 2018. Extortion is now a booming business, especially for one type of scam, the 419. Named after the section of the criminal code it violates, these scams originated primarily in Nigeria. The first iteration is one we're all familiar with, the Nigerian Prince scam. This new online strain is much more sophisticated. Whether or not the 419 scam that Debbie encountered was an independent operation is unclear. Joseph didn't indicate if he had associates working with him, but it's common for small crime rings to work together. They use Yahoo Instant Messaging as a portal to create long, emotional relationships with victims abroad. According to a 2015 Forbes report, the victims tend to be widowed or divorced women in their 50s, targeted by criminal syndicates, usually based in Nigeria. The report went on to detail how a Texas woman in her mid-50s had fallen for a contractor named Charlie, only to be fleeced out of more than $2 million by a crime ring operating in West Africa. Scamming is a lucrative lifestyle for some young hustlers trying to make it big in developing nations. The spoils of good cons gained popularity in music and on YouTube, such as Yahoozie, a catchy song with a music video filled with booze and luxury cars. Nigerian pop culture seems to suggest successful cons could become one's occupation, rather than a last resort tactic. With adept con artists on the prowl for good targets, Debbie's status as a new widow with access to money was alluring. She dove into dating without a good grasp of the fraud that had seeped into online matchmaking. Had better accreditation policies been in place in 2010, it's possible that Joseph wouldn't have been able to join LDS Planet as Eric Cole. But verification on dating sites only became widely scrutinized later on. Scammers use dating websites as marketplaces to shop for easy victims. Data collected by the Federal Trade Commission between 2013 and 2016 indicated that more than half the instant messages and favorites in some months were from bogus accounts. Even worse the FTC found that websites like Match, Tinder, and OkCupid actually featured fraudulent messages in their marketing campaigns. Even they couldn't tell whether a potential mate was real 
or fake. So how could their users? On top of that, the website seemed to suggest that a blissful match was imminent upon joining. This distorted reality of online dating is exactly what Debbie was unprepared for. Though she anticipated how she would be judged as an older woman with kids, she had no idea that someone on the other side of the screen could be so disingenuous. When Eric came along offering all the traits she wanted, it seemed that the dating website was fulfilling its promise. A special partner was waiting for her, and she was thrilled, so thrilled that she was willing to accept their relationship would only exist online. After all, Eric provided the emotional support she craved. In her book, Truth, Lies, and Trust on the Internet, psychologist Monica Witte explained that computer-mediated relationships can be hyper-personal. Participants can control how they present themselves, creating idealized avatars that elicit more trust and intimacy than their real-life face-to-face selves. Eric used their emotional relationship to lure Debbie into trusting him. This connection was what she wanted desperately to hang on to. Debbie was more than willing to send payment after payment if it meant maintaining the intimacy they shared. She thought she knew Eric, when in reality, she only knew the version that he presented to her. His reveal underscored this. Though Debbie had found loopholes and ways to skirt all the evidence that something was wrong throughout their two-year relationship, the video chat was undeniable. She had seen the man behind the screen. And it wasn't Eric. But Debbie had given far too much to simply close the chat windows and forget about Eric Cole. She had spent two years of her life with this person, Though she had been victimized, she wouldn't remain vulnerable. Debbie was going to do something about it. Coming up, we'll see how Debbie brought her case to the FBI and how she used her voice to speak out against the Eric Coles of the world. Now back to the story. 54-year-old Debbie Montgomery Johnson was incredibly worried following what she called the reveal on September 10, 2012. Her boyfriend, Eric Cole, a mid-50s widower, didn't exist. The man behind the screen was someone named Joseph, who lived in Nigeria. Not only did the man she loved not exist, she'd loaned him nearly a million dollars during the course of their relationship. And he had no clear plan on how or when he intended to pay her back. The danger of her position dawned on Debbie. And finally, she decided to seek help professionally. Fortunately, Debbie had kept a record of their entire relationship. She found journaling on her computer cathartic, Not only had she kept entries throughout their 22-month relationship, 
but she also had access to the backlog of their online chats. She hoped that these records, on top of a report for every single transaction she had sent him, would be enough to prove that she had been scammed. With this data in hand, Debbie made an appointment with the FBI in South Florida. According to Debbie, when the FBI agents saw her record-keeping, their mouths dropped. It wasn't the fact that Debbie had been scammed that shocked them. It was how well-documented the entire affair was. Unfortunately, despite all the paperwork, the FBI had bad news. Unless Joseph was in the United States, there was nothing they could do. She was taken aback. Absolutely nothing? Nothing. It was out of their jurisdiction. They sent Debbie home with instructions on how to file a complaint with the IC3, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, so there would be a record of it. But that was the extent of criminal closure they could provide. Crushed, Debbie left that meeting wondering if there was any other route to getting her money back. Her mind went to the international banks she sent wires to. These payments had clearly gone somewhere, and she had records of it, even the dates and account numbers. But the banks were dead ends too. After the wire transfers were completed, the receiving accounts had been closed, ending the paper trail. Joseph had made sure that Debbie's payments to him were a one-way pipeline. With the grim reality setting in, Debbie all but shut down. The once exciting relationship, full of promise, had reached the end of the tunnel, and it was pitch black. Debbie called her parents shortly after the reveal and told them what had happened. She had no idea how she would repay the $100,000 she'd borrowed. Still, they were unshakably supportive. It was a small comfort in light of the circumstances. But aside from her parents, Debbie didn't feel comfortable explaining what had happened to her friends or other family members. The scope of how deeply she had been played made her feel hurt, confused, and ashamed. She stopped talking about Eric. If anyone asked, the answer was just that it didn't work out. Some matches weren't meant to be. This is a common trend in love scams. Middle-aged and elderly victims are usually too ashamed to share their experiences. They anticipate that they will be judged as foolish or weak, so they keep quiet. Such fear isn't misplaced. Con artist expert Maria Konnikova noted that scam victims are often placed under a microscope due to the non-violent nature of the crimes. Not only are outside observers prone to vocalizing scrutiny, they're also more hesitant to empathize. A piece on Debbie's experience and the prevalence of stories about scamming by The Cut in 2019 confirmed this, observing, when it comes to stories of online romance scams, ingrained misogyny and ageism make it all too easy for many to scorn the often older, divorced women most visibly affected. 
Women swindled by scams often internalize the experience, wary of the sharp criticism of peers. Speaking out can usher in strident criticism of those already in vulnerable positions. But to grieve the end of her two-year relationship alone was equally harrowing. Debbie had compromised and contorted herself, and she now had no one to share her isolation with. It was eerily similar to what she experienced after Lou died, going through a roller coaster of negative emotions in a vacuum. Now, the ride had ended, and Debbie had lost everything all over again. Though it was tough to accept that the FBI could not pursue her case, it didn't appear that chasing Joseph through Yahoo Chat would be fruitful either. It's unclear if the two continued messaging after the reveal, but it seemed Debbie wanted to bury the entire experience. Instead, in the months that followed, she refocused her attention on what she could control. The vitamin business. Her business. To gain more confidence and authority, she signed up for a seminar on public speaking with her women's group. Surrounding herself with strong female peers sounded like a good distraction. Though Debbie had initially thought the way to move past the scam would be to recover in silence, the opposite proved true. When she was gathered with other women at the seminar luncheon, the conversation turned to online dating. Naturally, Debbie could barely conceal her disgust with digital relationships. The ladies with her were curious, and before long, the entire saga of Eric Cole tumbled out. Debbie expected the women to judge her when she revealed how she had been conned by Joseph. The reaction was quite the contrary. Not only did they empathize, they all had a scam story to share. They had relatives and friends who had been duped into similar scenarios. When Debbie expressed her hesitancy to come forward, they doubled down with encouragement. Debbie later recalled the ladies urging her, you have to tell, because there are intelligent, well-trained women out there being hurt, and nobody knows because they're not going to tell. It seemed that the time was finally approaching for Debbie to break her silence on a broader scale. To reveal what Joseph had done would be a risk, but one that could potentially save others from befalling the same fate. The result was her book, The Woman Behind the Smile, which she penned in just three short months. It chronicled everything from the years before her relationship with Eric to the fallout that ensued. It served as a space to vent and explain her perspective on being conned. It also afforded Debbie a platform to reflect on the distorted reality she faced with Eric. In one instance, Debbie recounted how her delusion drove her to dire measures. Eric told her his paycheck had been sent, in cash, to India, and that the courier wouldn't release it without Debbie's name on the paperwork. At that point, she was so exasperated with the circus of Eric getting paid 
that she told him she would fly to India to sort out the matter. On a day's notice, she flew from Florida to Texas to get a visa stamp. She was ready to purchase a flight to Mumbai when Eric stopped her. He worried it was too dangerous to visit and insisted she not come. She was relieved to not fly internationally on such short notice, but also disappointed that she wouldn't be able to meet Eric. It was anecdotes like these that made Debbie realize how scary being scammed could be. She didn't want another vulnerable woman to be in that position. So with support from friends and colleagues, Debbie published her book in 2016. It served as a jumping off point to launch her website under the same name, The Woman Behind the Smile. In the years since, Debbie has continued to advocate for awareness of love scams as a personal speaker. She's offered news and talk show interviews on her experience, warning others to be aware that con artists can prey on the savviest people. She notes, They'll never talk, because many times they're professional women that are in business somewhere, and they don't want their clients or their friends to know. The shame of being taken for a ride certainly affects women in particular. Being scammed is often associated with gullibility or foolishness. The idea is that if one isn't able to suss out a scammer, it indicates a lack of intelligence or emotional agility. But a 2009 UK study confirmed that many scam victims are successful professionals with track records of sound decision-making. However, whether due to personalities or extenuating circumstances, they tend to be unduly open to persuasion by others. Therefore, looking at a con's success through the lens of extreme persuasion rather than as a fault of the victim, is critical to avoid undue scorn. Encouraging solidarity among those who've been scammed appears the strongest tool to combating con artists who disappear without a trace. This was certainly the case for Debbie. Though she doesn't state exactly when communication ended, Joseph and Debbie no longer speak. His specific whereabouts are currently unknown, and Debbie hasn't been repaid for any of the money she sent him. Without a way to obtain reparations from Joseph, Debbie has turned her attention to the present. In interviews and public speaking engagements, she addresses dating websites, emphasizing the need to be more transparent about the potential for foul play. She noted, If my business hurt people the way this online dating has hurt me, I'd be out of business. I don't think it's being acknowledged as fully as it should be. Still, Debbie keeps a touch of optimism. She admits she avoided the worst-case scenario that sometimes befalls victims. According to a Huffington Post article from 2017, following the revelation that they've been conned, some women continue to desire the men who they understand are not actually real. Debbie was able to cut ties with her malignant con artist. She acknowledges that at least Joseph confessed to her, aware that many of those conned are left without any closure. She feels the reveal 
was a minute consolation, saying, Most victims, the guy walks away, and you never hear from him. If that had happened to me, I would have felt like my husband died again. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Debbie Montgomery Johnson, we found her book, The Woman Behind the Smile, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Con Artist was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.